Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Chad Randall at Life Story Church. We are a grassroots church located in the heart of the Bellevue community in Nashville, Tennessee. Our services are streamed live on Facebook and YouTube every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time. We would love for you to join us. Now here's Pastor Chad Randall. So, da, 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 da. How are we doing, Andrew? Don't laugh at me, Eva. I'll tell you what, this kid, hey, there it is, the millennial reign of Christ. That's what we were looking for. Revelation chapter 20. I thought that was a pretty cool picture. I don't know what you guys think about when you think of the millennial reign of Christ, but man, uh, I just can't wait. I can't, are we ready for King Jesus to, to come back or what, huh? I, I can't wait till he comes back. Just the thought of what life will be when he's here, you know, all of the, the pain and the sorrow and the heartbreak and the frustration. Um, the, the, I mean, just look at the world leadership that we have right now, where everything is at in the world right now. Imagine it all wiped away, all of the corruption wiped away, and King Jesus is on the throne, and all is right, and all is just. Uh, it's going to be a fun conversation that we have tonight. So let me jump into this, my first graphic uh, tonight. We're going to, uh, let me give you a synopsis of this final section of Revelation, Okay. We've been moving through different parts of it. We did the letters to the churches for the first three chapters. And then we've moved through uh, the tribulation period. And now we're coming to an end of the tribulation period. And tonight, uh, we're going to be talking about chapter 20, the millennium. Can we see that synopsis of the of the section? Wonderful. So we talked about Mystery Babylon, chapter 17, chapter 18, uh, uh, Babylon, the city, Babylon, the return of the king last week, and tonight, the millennium, okay? So I'm going to have to give you guys um, a breakdown a little bit here. Let me, I want to paint a picture for you guys. The millennial reign of Christ, what exactly is that? What exactly does that look like biblically? What I'm talking about is a thousand-year millennial reign, as we've studied through Revelation, we've talked about a lot of different things uh, from the letters to the churches to a rapture event in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, I believe, to the elders being the church and the throne room of God to a seven-year tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble bearing out here on the earth. And now we enter into a period as that tribulation comes to a close, a thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. Now, a lot of people interpret scripture in different ways from different perspectives, but let me give you a breakdown right out of the gate as far as how different people arrive at these different ways that they look at Revelation and these scriptures. Can I see this next graphic? When it comes to eschatology, eschatology is the study of the end times. There are different schools of thought, okay, as people try to make sense out of the Bible. Now, basically, how you interpret the Word of God is considered your hermeneutics. So you can consider, like many do, like the apostate church does today, that all the Word of God is allegorical, or you can uh, interpret things as we do at Life Story Church, literal. We believe at Life Story Church that God means what he says. He says what it means, says what he means throughout the word of God. And when he uses metaphor, metaphors, uh, he explains them shortly thereafter. He uses metaphors all the time. There are different idioms in the word of God. But as far as allegorizing the text, we don't, uh, uh, there are allegories in the word, but you can't 
take that to the extreme rather. So, so if you're looking at that graphic one more time, your hermeneutics from allegory to literal, the amillennial perspective, there's an amillennial, postmillennial, and premillennial perspectives in how you uh, interpret scripture. Your amillennial, if you just think it's all allegorical, your premillennial, if you take things literally. Now that's us, right? So if you're a premillennial, you can take things literally, then you still have, well, when is Jesus coming back? When is the rapture? of the church. Is it a post-tribulational rapture of the church, a mid-tribulational rapture of the church, or a pre-millennial, pre-tribulation rapture of the church? We are, I believe, uh, you know, I've studied this uh, subject at length. At one point in my life, I was pre-tribulation, and then I studied it, and I really fell into the uh, mid-trib category. Then I studied a little bit more, and I really fell into the post-tribulational category until I kept studying and kept studying and it brought me all the way back around to where I personally firmly rest in the pre-tribulational rapture category. So I take the word of God literal, which makes me pre-tribulational in when I think Jesus is going to come back and rapture the church. So amillennial, I just want you to understand these words as we move forward, okay? So an amillennial versus premillennial perspective. This is important because, like I said, if you're amillennial, you think a lot of that. You take a lot of the word of God as allegorical versus literal. Okay, Origen, one of the uh, early church fathers in the third third century. Uh, noticed that there was a number of allegories in the Word of God, and he, but he took it to an extreme. He began to allegorize all of the text. And we've heard of St. Augustine, right? So Augustine was really a student of origin, and he began to allegorize much of the text. And really allegorizing the text, the Word of God, became the predominant school of thought, truly. And it was the predominant school of thought in the Catholic Church. And of course, we know the Catholic Church then drove Catholicism, drove Catholicism, really drove Christianity, if you can call it that, but uh, which it really began became a, a legalism cult, Catholicism did, you know, th- certainly through the Dark Ages. In any case, this this dominant school of allegorizing the text when it comes to a millennial reign of Christ, that becoming the predominant thinking, it really goes all the way back to origin. So from origin to Augustine, when you allegorize the text, uh, Chuck Missler loves to say from origin to Augustine to Auschwitz. Because when you allegorize the text, you turn the, the, the promises to the Jews into promises to the church. You get replacement theology. Suddenly you're reading the text. And if it's allegory, when I'm reading about Israel, I'm reading about me. And this, that, these are the problems you get into when you start to allegorize things. Okay, So uh, one of the main things, honestly, we say one of the, the Reformation did an amazing job of liberating Christianity from... Catholicism, uh, returning the truth of the gospel away from the the legalistic cult side of things. As far as faith plus nothing equals salvation, that's the simple beauty and truth of the gospel, right? So uh, they did a beautiful job doing that, but they didn't address eschatology 
The reformers never addressed eschatology. So although Protestantism broke from the Catholic Church and the truth of the gospel was secured and safeguarded, um, unfortunately, eschatology was never addressed. So much of our interpretation of prophecy and revelation remains to be allegorized even by many, many Protestant churches. So you've got all of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church uh, believes that Revelation is allegory. They believe that we are in the thousand-year millennial reign. They believe that the great falling away of Thessalonians was when the Protestants broke away from the Catholic Church and that we're in the millennial reign. The only problem with with us being in a thousand-year millennial reign right now is that, well, we're 2,000 years out from Christ already, right? So um, that's, that's, uh, problematic if we're looking at these scriptures and, and want to allegorize them. We believe at Life Story Church that the millennium is meant literally just as the first century church fathers did. If you read uh, the Anti-Nicene Fathers and you dig through all of the uh, they're the first century, the disciples of the disciples, they interpreted scripture literally. They believed that Jesus Christ would sit on the throne of David, be King Jesus over the whole world, and reign on earth for a thousand years. All right? So they interpreted scripture. Uh, they were premillennial, pre tribulation literalists. So I had to cover that guy with that with you guys, that with you guys right out of the gate, because there's a really good chance that a a lot of you watching this, you may be Protestant, you may go to a non-denominational Protestant church or denominational Protestant church, yet the leadership in your church, the uh, seminaries of your church or denomination are still teaching prophecy as allegory. And we're not taking that approach at all. We're taking it as a, as a, a uh, literal thousand-year millennial reign. Let me give you uh, a couple reasons why. There's a few problems with the amillennial approach to interpreting prophecy. Can I see this graphic? Throughout the Old Testament, there are dozens of verses with messianic promises about the second coming. Dozens. The destiny of Israel in God's covenants clearly places Israel in the end times. Israel. Okay, the nation of Israel. Israel also appears 75 times in the New Testament. But I thought the New Testament was our book, and it's all about the church, right? No, well, Israel is in there 75 different times. And those instances refer to a national Israel, the nation of Israel, who just formed a new government today, by the way, if you haven't seen that, which will include for the first time ever Arab leadership. So that's interesting as the world braces itself for an antichrist that according to ancient rabbis will be both Jewish and uh, Arab. Uh, The promise given to Mary by uh, angel Gabriel, by the way, when Gabriel came and talked to Mary, he promised her that her child, Yeshua, would sit on the throne of David. There are numerous reconfirmations as well in the new in the New Testament as well. The millennium. Let's see this next picture. Can we see the next graphic, Evangeline? Thank you. The promise promise to David under oath the throne. And is predicted in Psalms, 
predicted in the prophets. There's a few scripture references there for you guys to uh, look up. So I don't know if you want to look up every single one of them, take a screenshot of the picture or take a, uh, a picture with your phone. But I mean, to look at all of those. Look at all of those. All of those references in the Old Testament about a millennial reign Messiah sitting on the throat of David. Again, promised to Mary, reaffirmed to the apostles, even in the Lord's Prayer. Well, I say it every night with my kids, thy kingdom come. Truly, we're speaking of a literal kingdom. We're praying for a literal kingdom of God to come with Jesus sitting on the throne. He will rule with a rod of iron and every knee will bow, church. This is, this is some powerful stuff we're about to dig, in, to dig into here tonight. So, so with all of that in mind, we're looking to a literal thousand-year millennial reign of Jesus after the seven-year tribulation period. Let's read Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, shall we? Then I saw an angel coming down. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. Wow, look at that visual right out of the gates, church. This is a, con a continuation of Revelation chapter 19, by the way, if you recall our study from last week. The chapters and divisions are not inspired. Like the word of God was written on scrolls. For example, the Revelation scroll itself, basically they would take a piece of paper like we know them today, right? Their parchment then or papyrus or whatever. And they would, when the page was filled, they would seal it onto the previous one and they keep just adding to the scroll. So the scroll of Revelation is actually 15 feet long. How cool is that? The chapters, the issue of the chapters that we've got, uh, they were devised by Stephen Langton, Archbishop of Canterbury in the early early uh, 13th century. So really, we're studying through chapter 19. Now we hit 20. It's just really, it should just roll all together. But the visual here is unbelievable. The bottomless pit in Greek here is the word abuso. Abuso. And it's mentioned seven different times in Revelation. Seven, seven different times. Where is this pit? Where is this pit? Is it geocentric? Is it truly in the center of the earth? I don't know. But the abuso, is it dimensional? That's well, definitely dimensional, that's for sure. But the abuso is where the, if you remember, the Antichrist comes out of the abuso in Revelation chapter 11 and Revelation 17. Uh, let's keep reading, verse 2. Remember, he's got the chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Verse 3. He cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things... He must be released for a little while. So as I mentioned before, uh, you know, some people, you, we see the thousand years here. Some people believe that the millennium has already begun. Uh, Chuck Smith of Calvary Chapel used to say that if the millennium has uh, already begun, then Satan's chain is way too long, isn't it? I love that because do we not see him at work in the world today? Certainly we do. Uh, I mean, to be honest with you, there is 
very little evidence that he is bound at all at this point, right? So also take notice in uh, this scripture that, you know, Satan is bound, right? Satan is bound, but it does not take Jesus to bind Satan. It didn't take Jesus to bind Satan. It was just an angel. It's important for us as Christians to understand, everybody to understand truly, uh, that Satan is not a counterpart to Jesus Christ, to Yeshua HaMashiach. Satan, in all the power and influence that he has in this world as Lord of the air, uh, he is by no means even close to a counterpart or equal of Jesus's, or even a good rival, as we would see in sports or say in athletics, right? Jesus Christ is the creator and he created the angels. Paul was uh, certain, by the way, uh, that Satan was loose in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, wasn't he? John agreed with him in, in uh, Revelation chapter 2 as well. And as we read Revelation chapter 12, we saw in verse 9 that uh, he was cast out of heaven. At this point, he was cast out. And now at this point, he's cast out of the earth as well. So the, dur the duration of a thousand years... As we study through this whole chapter, we're going to see that it's referenced and mentioned six different times, okay? I mean, how many times does God have to say it before we believe it's true, right? A thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years, okay? Uh, oftentimes, people who allegorize this millennium, uh, they'll use 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Remember when Peter said, you know, a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. They'll use that or Psalm 90, uh, verse 4. They'll use those scriptures to, to justify the allegory, allegorization of that thousand years as being just one day. But this verse tells us also where the nations are getting deceived from. Wouldn't you agree that the whole world is, is is being led astray at this point. My goodness, there's so much deception in the nations today. Well, who's doing the deceiving? Who's doing it? Satan. And he is sealed up so that he should deceive the nations no more. Won't that be nice? One day. Let's keep reading. Verse 4. And I saw thrones... And they, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. Speaking back, of course, to Revelation 13, the mark of the beast. Uh, and they lived and reigned with Christ for how long? Anybody want to guess? For a thousand years, there it is again. So uh, one thing that's very important for us to understand as we study through Revelation is that there are different groups of people in Revelation. If you don't understand who these different groups of people are, it can get real confusing real fast. So uh, if there are saints who are beheaded, well then... it. Isn't that the church? Is that if, if you don't understand who these groups of people are, then you might think that's the church or that's you. And then that can be confusing because then you're definitely putting yourself into the tribulation. And, and even people who will take the word of God literal, they'll, they'll get confused on these scriptures and they'll think that this is uh, 
the church going through the tribulation if they don't understand who these basic groups of people are. So let me lay this out for you guys, okay? If there's four classes, four classes of people throughout Revelation. Uh, Old Testament saints are mentioned, okay? Can we see this graphic? Old Testament saints are mentioned. Uh, the church, okay? Four classes of people. There's the Old Testament saints. There's the church, then there's, uh, which we see mentioned, Revelation 5, the throne room of God. Tribulation martyrs, okay? Tribu those are these, these are those who uh, come to Christ during the tribulation period. Because uh, as I mentioned, we're looking, if we're looking at Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, as a rapture event, Jesus coming for his bride, then, I mean, how many people in this world have their grandmothers been trying to talk to them about Jesus for so long or their brothers or sisters or best friends. They just never received the word. They never, they never put their hope and trust and faith in Jesus Christ. But the moment that the rapture, a rapture event occurs or that they've heard enough of this stuff from uh, you telling them, hey, there's going to be a tribulation period. There's going to be a great deception. There's going to be this or that. There will be people who come to Christ. These, and when they come to Christ, they're martyred for it. That's going to be the state of the world. So this is that group of people. We see them in Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. And then the last one, tribulation saints, okay? Living survivors that worshiped not the beast, okay? So that's obviously a fourth group of people here. Understanding this, let's keep moving forward with verse 5. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. Let me back that up back into verse four and then keep reading through verse five. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection, okay? It's important to note that, put a pen in that. We're gonna dig into that a little bit more. Verse six, blessed and holy, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Important to note that. Blessed and holy. Who, can only, who is the only one who can make any human being holy? Jesus Christ, amen? It's his righteousness that we wear. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So priests and kings, right? Priests of God and Christ. Who, who are priests and kings? The three, three people in the whole Bible were priests and kings. Melchizedek, priest and king. Jesus Christ, priest and king. And as we've learned through Revelation, the study of Revelation, any believer in Christ. So uh, you, right? You and you and I, us. So, but what we need to understand and take out of this first resurrection was blessery for the first resurrection. Second death has no power. What in the world is that all about? There are two resurrections, okay? Two resurrections uh, of the just. You can see references to those resurrections in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. John chapter 5, if you're taking notes, 28 through 29. Acts chapter 24, verse 15, and Luke 14, verse 14. The first resurrection 
is a category. This is huge. You won't understand it if you don't understand this. The first resurrection is a category, not a single event, all right? The first resurrection was Jesus Christ, and it began in the garden tomb. Matthew chapter 27, remember what else happened? Graves were open. It was a resurrection event, okay? So it also includes the harpazo, the rapture of the church before the tribulation period, and the faithful after the tribulation. This whole category is the first resurrection. So we need to understand that, all right? This is in contrast to the second resurrection, which is at the end of the thousand years. Yeah, it can get very confusing otherwise, okay? So at the end of the thousand years is a second uh, uh, resurrection, the wicked dead to be raised and answer to God for what they've done. And, uh, and certainly they will. So what is this talk of the second death? Well, there's a physical death, right? We know physical death, which is the separation from the body, the, the, the soul from the body. The soul is separated from the body. Spiritual death, though, the second death, is separation of the soul from God. You understand? So looking in that scripture again, uh, blessed and holy is the one who has, has part in the first resurrection over such, the second death has no power. So if you're in the category of the second death having no power over you, then you're in the category of the first resurrection, okay? Uh, the word, interestingly enough there, uh, in the Greek is anastase, which means to stand up or a bodily resurrection, okay? The thrones are literal, the martyrs are literal. Jesus is literal and resurrection is also literal. And the thousand year millennial reign that will be on this earth when Jesus reigns from the throne of David will be literal. Mm. The sixth of the seven Beatitudes referenced here in Revelation. When we read about priests and reigning with him, it is describing the redeemed, the redeemed church. And that is you, Revelation chapter 2, Revelation 20 verse 6, verse 14. And we'll see it again in Revelation 21 verse 8. We see, uh, can I see this next graphic? Revelation chapter 21 verse 7. I'm going to skip ahead just for this one verse. And... Uh, Skip ahead to next week for one verse real quick. He that overcometh, he that overcometh shall inherit all things. I will be his God and he shall be my son. Mm. Praise God. Amen. Doesn't that sound good? Doesn't that sound good? Oh man. The more you study the more, the millennium, okay, the more you study it, I understand that the more questions arise. That's why it's so important to really tear this apart and take it apart uh, because the Holy Spirit wants to lead us into all knowledge and all truth. Amen? So <clears throat> uh, it's a tough area to research because there are a lot of issues other than geographical. Uh, one thing that we need to understand is that during this millennial reign, everything will be different. Everything's going to be different, guys. I mean, praise God. Amen? 
uh, for starters, in the twinkling of an eye, as lightning is seen from the east to the west, so it shall be. In a, in a moment, we will meet Jesus in the air, Paul tells us, right? So how, we, how is this body going to meet him in the clouds? No, we've talked about this a number of times. What happened when Adam and Eve fell in the garden? When Adam and Eve fell in the garden, they realized all of a sudden that they were naked. Naked, Something had changed. Sin and death had entered the world, had entered their bodies. That was the first murder in all of Scripture was when he essentially killed Adam and Eve. Satan deceived them and killed them by tricking them into uh, eating the fruit and thus falling from the, the state that they were in. Many uh, uh, Bible scholars and, and uh, uh, quantum physicists believe that for creation week to have happened the way that the Bible describes it, God would have to exist in at least 10 or 11 dimensions, right? Don't even, I can't even comprehend that, how and why. I just, it sounds like it makes sense to me, right? It, sounds, it rings true to me. But Adam and Eve, that, with that in mind, if God, Adam is created in God's likeness, he was likely different dimensionally. And when we are raptured, into the air to meet Christ, and so shall we be with him, we'll be transfigured, right? So our bodies being transfigured will likely be like Adam was, free of sin and death and of the world and this body. Um, so we can't look forward into Revelation and into this millennium as if you can try to make sense of it from a perspective of things being then like they still are now with us being in this same body even. So uh, the creation itself will be changed in the millennium. Can I see this first graphic? We know that there will be physical changes, physical changes. Zechariah 4, Isaiah 35. The curse will be lifted, praise God. Praise God, Isaiah chapter 11. Creation itself will re be redeemed. Genesis chapter 3 versus Romans chapter 8. So creation itself redeemed. Word tells us that the earth itself is groaning to be restored. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord according to Isaiah and Habakkuk. Yet, yet, this still is not eternity. There will still be death and sin upon the world. Okay, uh, each to have their land, okay, and to be still fruitful, according to Amos. But this is not eternity, okay, and this is not heaven yet, okay. St still, the millennial reign, there are, there are still earth dwellers, okay. So there's, as long as there are still those that survived the tribulation period living in the human state on the earth, okay, we know it's not eternity yet, okay? However, we will be transfigured and reign with Christ, and Christ reign from his throne uh, in Jerusalem uh, on the throne of David. It's interesting to think about, isn't it? It is. It's certainly uh, not eternity. It's not heaven, okay? It's not heaven. The eternal state will follow, and we'll read about that next week in Revelation chapter 1. This is not the new earth that we'll read about next week and is also referenced in Isaiah, okay? And it is not where righteousness dwells yet, okay? It is where righteousness is enforced, though. 
one more graphic on this note. There will be still evil in the world, but it will be limited because when we come across it, it is immediately dealt with. Jesus handles it immediately. And that leads us to some other questions, you know. Uh, what is what is the lifespan going to be, right? Uh, there will be death for, will death be for unbelievers only? Uh, nowhere. In the scripture, is there a resurrection of millennial saints, right? So uh, the saints are transfigured, okay? So tribulation saints complete the first resurrection, the first resurrection. So at the end of the tribulation period, those who took not the mark, right? They're transfigured. Uh, There are no Jewish unbelievers as well, interestingly enough. Okay, and they all accept by the hundredth year of the millennia, according to Isaiah uh, 65. Thus, can we say, well, there will only be death among Gentiles? I don't know. It's, but it's going to, I, I'm trying to paint this picture with you guys so we can get out of our perspectives that things are always going to be how they are now. No, things are going to be vastly different in a way that we truly can't comprehend at this point. So, at this point, getting back to the scripture, Satan's rebellion is crushed. Okay? So, at the, at the end of this thousand-year millennial reign, Satan, he's been chained, abuso, right? But then he's released at the end, and why? God's sovereignty. I can't give you an answer on that. Uh, I, I don't know, one final uh, opportunity for those alive it, it, in, as in their human state to choose love, to choose God again? I don't know. But let's read verse 7. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. Verse 8. And will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. Interesting. Now, this is not to be confused with, okay? Uh, This is not to be confused with uh, Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. Uh, Again, um, context is everything. Breaking down the scripture, uh, taking it apart lit- literally. What we're doing tonight is so important. Or if you're just reading everything at face value, it can get pretty confusing. This is not to be confused with Ezekiel 38 and 39, which is uh, f- which is from the north, not from the four corners of the earth, okay? Uh, and is before the second coming, Okay, this is after the second coming of Christ already. He's been reigning, and this is at the end of the thousand-year millennial reign. The time, the place, and the participants of this battle are all different. Yet, Gog and Magog show up here, okay? Magog, remember, is is a people. It's a people. Uh, But how can Gog still be alive after a thousand years then, right? The, the leader will remember that Gog, as we studied, I think back in uh, chapter 9, is a demon. He's a demon king, referencing uh, Amos uh, chapter 7, verse 1, as we looked at in the Septuagint. It called him the king of the locusts, okay? 
comparing that to Proverbs chapter 30 and Revelation 9. Uh, go back if you have if you're interested in that subject. We really dug into that pretty deep back in Revelation chapter 9. You can find that video on the YouTube uh, catalog. Okay. Uh, but Gog and Magog by this point at the end of the thousand-year millennial reign have become an idiom by then, okay? This is the second occurrence of a similar battle. Just make that clear so it's not confusing. Verse 9, let's keep reading. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. There will probably be more people in this period of time than any other due to the perfect environment. Think of it. Jesus is on the earth reigning. There's For a thousand years, there's peace. Uh, there's health, right? No disease. There's no lack of anything. There's no poverty on the face of the earth. I, the population will probably explode uh, in regards to them being as numerous as the sand of the sea, right? Or the shore, seashore. Uh, but even after a thousand years, think about this, think about this. Jesus is reigning. There's no sickness, no disease. There's peace on the earth. And still though, after a thousand years of perfect rule, there is enough evil, evil in the hearts of man that given the opportunity, he still rebels. That... What does that tell you about us, church? We belong to a fallen race, truly, and every human being is born with an essentially evil nature and virtue within them. A perfect environment during this thousand-year reign still reveals the fallen nature of man. A perfect environment, it goes to show us that a perfect environment still cannot perfect man's heart. Hmm. The serious nature of our own heart can only be known by the word of God, according to Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. Let's keep reading verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. This is interesting. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So look at this real quick. After a thousand years, after a thousand years, at the end of the tribulation period, what happens? The beast and the false prophet thrown into the lake of fire, right? After a thousand years, they're still there. There is, it speaks to, uh, uh, again, what we talked about several uh weeks back or chapters back, there is no annihilation in the Bible, okay? There's no annihilation. They are still burning there forever and ever. Still there and will be there. So we did a, a when we covered that uh, uh, chapters back, we talked about how uh, uh, some of the scriptures, when you t break them down, uh, lingually into the Greek, you can, it makes it clear that there is no annihilation in the Bible. So then we come to verse 11. The great, the great white throne judgment. You've heard so much about it. This is, inter this is really good for us to cover because there's so much um, confusion about 
one day we'll stand before God and we'll answer for all the sins in your life. And this idea and narrative has really been painted throughout history that for the believer, he'll, the believer will still have to stand before God one day. It'll just be you and nobody else will be able to stand beside you and, and give an excuse or stick up for you or whatnot. You're going to have to answer for everything that you've done. There are different, there are different, different uh, uh, seats, right? So my sin, everything that I have done wrong, everything I should have done right but didn't do, everything that I have to answer for before God, all of my failures, all of my sin, my unholiness, everything, Jesus has taken that for me on the cross, you see. He's already taken that for me. So in the eyes of God, in the eyes of God, my sin is thrown into a sea of forgetfulness. When he looks upon me, he sees the righteousness of Christ. I am seated now with Christ in the heavenlies, right? We just studied that on Sunday. So this idea that one day I'll have to stand before God and answer for all my sin is completely wrong. It is completely wrong. There's a bema seat of Christ and a great white throne judgment, okay? Two different things. One judgment, we stand before God and his saints receive crowns and they receive rewards and riches and inheritance for what they have done for him with the time that we've been allotted, okay? So one day you will stand before God, but it will be to receive riches and reward for what you have done for the kingdom of God, right? Not, not, to, not to answer for sins that you committed that I thought Jesus already paid for that, right? No, there's a, there are two different things, okay? The great white throne judgment is for the dead, not the saved. You don't want to be at this, uh, this gathering, and you don't have to be if your hope is in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, okay? It's not to be confused with the Bema seat where crowns and rewards for faithful service are bestowed. And if you want to read more about that, you can look at Revelation chapter 4, Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 through 11, Isaiah chapter 6, Ezekiel chapter 1, 1 Kings 22, 19, uh, Exodus 24, verse 9 through 11, I mean, throughout the scripture, all right? The judge will be Jesus Christ here, all right? The judge will be Jesus Christ. No believers are involved. John chapter 5, verse 24, Matthew chapter 19, 28, Acts 10, Acts 17. No believers are uh, are involved, excuse me, John chapter 5, 24, and Matthew 7, 22 through 23. Rewind that if you need the notes. Okay, I've got to tell you, the, these climate activists of today, everybody who's trying to save the earth uh, uh, with communism, uh, they're doomed to failure. Climate activists, they're doomed to failure. You cannot save the earth. There's nothing you can do. And I'm not even getting into global warming and you know, he's a climate change denier. Pastor Chad is not even talking about that. God has got a plan for this earth. It is riddled with sin itself. It will be restored. But in the end, church, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. So I hate to tell that uh, to you guys. You can't save the earth. It doesn't matter what you do. Verse 12. And I saw the dead, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged 
the dead were judged, important, according to their works. Are you dead? No, you are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. They were dead by the, they were uh, uh, judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. What books are these, huh? Interesting that there are these books there. The ancient rabbis taught that there were three books. There was the book of life, and then there was the book of the dead, and then the intermediary book. And interestingly enough, they teach that on Yom Teruah, the Feast of Trumpets, that, that the books are opened, right? And you're either, it, those who are written in the book of life are saved or redeemed, but then there's a period of time of uh, 10 days until the Day of Atonement. And those who are written in the intermediary book, okay, some are written in the book of life, some are written in the book of death, but those, there are those in the intermediary book uh, the rabbis would teach that have those 10 days to get right with God before the Day of Atonement. So I think we're seeing these books opened here, okay? Uh, note that it's plural. There's multiple books here. Uh, that's just my conjecture, though. God's word states in John chapter 12, verse 48, and I don't have it on the screen for you, but he that rejecteth me and receiveth, receiveth not my words hath one hath one that judgeth, judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Works don't save you, church. Works don't save you, friend. Here we see a judge, but no jury. A prosecution, but no defense. A sentence, but no appeal. Note, dead occurs seven times in verses 12 through 14. Seven times dead comes up. You know, if you know Jesus Christ, you can avoid this whole thing. You can avoid this whole white throne judgment scene, answering for sins, evil works. You can avoid it all. Before God can usher in his new heavens and his new earth, he must finally, finally, once and for all, deal with sin because it hasn't been wiped away yet. The answering for injustices hasn't been answered yet. This he will do at the great white throne. Verse 13. The sea gave up the dead. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Mm. You don't want to be saved by works, church. You don't want to be saved by works. <laughs> Being judged by works is a deadly proposition. Even by their own standards, they fail. So, so who is all the death and Hades are giving up everybody? Every, think about this. So from the beginning of the Bible, Genesis, Genesis 6, all throughout the word of God, all of the wicked dead, those who had not faith in Jesus Christ, who were in Hades, they're released and they come before the white throne. So even, are we, we're looking at... Uh, um, potentially looking at uh, demonic forces coming here. So the sea gave up the dead who were in it and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them 
and they were judged. Pember uh, conjectured that demon forces were agitating the sea. In Matthew chapter 8, demons took temporary refuge in the sea. Uh, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 30, uh, are we looking at these uh, dis disembodied spirits, perhaps from uh, uh, earlier Nephilim? I don't know. Interesting. Verse 14, let's keep reading. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Remember back when we said those uh, who are part of the first resurrection, blessed are they, blessed are they, they will not suffer from the second death. This is the second death, the death of death, okay? Hades, Sheol, okay? There are these different places uh, for, for the underworld, for those who aren't believers in Christ, we see throughout the scripture. Hades and Sheol, they're temporary. This, this uh, lake of fire, this Gehenna is, per, is permanent, church. That is, it is outside of the time domain and permanent. Verse 15. We're close to wrapping up here, guys. Verse 15. Last verse of the chapter. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The book of life, church. It's not a book of your works. It's not a book of your works. Your works are inadequate. But your name is there if you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your savior. This book of life will have names of believers, not their works. The book of life, what's written in the book of life? Names, not works. Mm, thank God for that. Names, is your name written in the book of life? Oh, I hope it is. Mm -mm -mm. You can contrast this book of life that has names of those who have believed. Contrast that uh, with Malachi chapter 3, verse 16, which recorded them that feared the Lord and thought upon his name. Or uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14 through 15, when Paul's dealing with rewards for believers, right? Hell is a witness to the righteous character of God. Church, hell is a witness to man's responsibility. God does not send people to hell. This is what we have to understand. There's a big movement in the church today that tries to say there is no hell because how could God send anybody to hell? There's no hell. Yada, yada. God does not send people to hell. They send themselves there by rejecting the Savior. John chapter 3, verse 16 through 21, Matthew 25, 41. If we saw sin as God sees sin, we would understand why a place like hell has to exist. We would. I heard uh, uh, somebody say, uh, or maybe I said it, I can't remember. I was talking to Amber once and I said, you know, people on this whole subject of there being no hell and how horrible it is of God for there to be a hell. It's like, well, what do you do with Hitler then, right? But truly, what do you do with truly wicked, demonic, and evil beings who have rejected Christ and embraced Luciferianism, have embraced uh, the darkness? What do you do? Well, obviously, they can't be in the presence of God. What happens to them being 
what happens to them, therefore, if they're not in the presence of God? Well, how many stories have we heard of people who didn't know the Lord that as they passed away, they were screaming, right? That they saw demons coming for them. I believe those stories, church. Are, are you written? Are you written? And we'll close here tonight. Are you written in the Lamb's book of life? Are you? <clears throat> or are you or or, or are you pretending or, or preparing uh, to defend yourself before God at the white throne judgment? Because it's one or the other. You think you're going to have enough to say to defend yourself at the white throne judgment? I don't. I don't encourage you to take that approach. You know, you can skip the whole thing right now if you just put your hope and your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ, that the work of the cross was enough, Yeshua. The work of the cross was enough. It paid your debt. He paid for your sin. He did all the work for you right there. And then what happened? He rose from the grave on the third day, the first fruits of the resurrection, the first resurrection. And you can be a part of that with him if you put your faith and trust in him. Mm. It's not what you know, right? It's who you know. <laughs> we'll close there tonight. Let's do this. Are you ready? Are you ready for a millennial reign? Are you ready? For, I'm telling you where the world is at right now. If you know Bible prophecy, if you know the word of God, you can see that we are headed quickly into a seven-year tribulation. We're headed quickly towards a rapture event, a seven-year tribulation, the second coming of Christ after that, and then a thousand-year millennial reign. Are you prepared to go through all of that, just trusting, resting on your laurels, trusting that you've done enough, that you're, I'm a good person in general. I, you know, I, I think I'll be able to explain to God why, you know, apart from Christ, there's no other name by which men can be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. Put your faith and your trust in him. If you've not done that, don't let another second go by. Just pray with me right now. Say, Jesus, I believe that you're God. I believe that you love me. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. I believe that you rose from the grave on the third day. Remember me, Lord Jesus. Write my name in the book of life, Lord. And when you come to gather your bride, Remember me and call my name, Lord, and bring me to where you are. I want to meet you in the clouds, Lord Jesus. Mm. I want to be with you. You are my king. You are my king. Say that. I want to rule and reign with you in the millennial reign. I want to be with you, Lord. I believe this is who you are. I believe you're all powerful. I believe you're all loving. I believe you've done all of this because you love me. I receive you, receive me, in Jesus' name, amen. We love you guys. Awesome study. Thanks for hanging out with us through the uh, technical difficulties in the beginning, and uh, uh, hope you had a blessed evening, and hope you continue to have a blessed evening. Hope this study blessed your heart tonight. So, uh, We'll see you guys Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. We love you. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. May he pour favor out on your lives. May you go in grace and prosper in all you do. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Good night, guys. Mm -hmm.